Hello and welcome to the Funds Fanatic Show. I'm Jeremy Gordon, Assistant Editor of Funds Insider at CityWire, and I'm joined on the podcast today by Fidelity's Jeremy Podger. Jeremy has been the lead manager of the £3.3 billion Fidelity Global Special Situations Fund since 2012, during a period when the performance of highly rated growth stocks and cheaper value stocks has become incredibly polarised, he has managed to beat the global market by keeping a foot in both camps. More recently, Jeremy has warned about bubbles in areas like green energy, although after a relentless market rally since the early days of the coronavirus pandemic, the sunny outlook being priced in pretty much everywhere looks increasingly concerning. Welcome, Jeremy. Um, to start with, perhaps you can summarise the, the process of the fund. It's a bit unusual, I think, in that you, you don't just say we're trying to pick the, pick the best stocks in the world, but you break it up into these different buckets. Yeah, well, um, let, me, let me start by explaining those, those buckets then. Um, so we have these three separate categories, and they basically direct the way we select stocks. So the first bucket is corporate change. And here we're looking for companies that are undergoing big structural change, normally through spin-offs, uh, divestments, or, or mergers. And here we're looking for um, at least 15% upside potential over 12 to 18 months. So it's a, a relatively short-term view. Um, the second bucket is what we call exceptional value. And here we're looking for companies that are demonstrably cheap, um, either against their peer group or against their history, um, and with margin improvement potential. So we want to see the, the stocks re-rate as the profitability improves. Um, and here, our target is to, to, to have a potential 50% total return over a holding period of three years. Uh, and the final category is what we call unique businesses. Uh, and here we're looking for companies with um, real strength in their niche. So uh, we're looking for pricing power, we're looking for revenue growth that is better than GDP. So, so normally a relatively fast growing industry. Um, and here we're looking to, uh, to, to get at least 15% annualized return during this growth period, um, uh, which, you know, we're looking uh, at least three years down the road. So um, unlike the value category, we're not assuming that valuations will, will increase over the period. Um, we're really looking for that return to be generated by the, in, by the growth within the business itself. Okay, thank you. So an, an interesting approach, but I suppose you know, why do you do this? You know, why bother complicating it in this way? Well, I don't think it's complication, really. <laughs> um, actually, I think it's simplification. Um, I think a lot of other people will simply say that they select the best stocks in the global universe. But the universe is, is very, very broad. Um, and having this focused approach with a relatively high rate of potential return means that effectively we narrow our field of focus. Um, and essentially, this process has been in place since, since I joined Fidelity in 2012. And, um, you know, I, I put it in place because it really was an articulation of what I found had been um, successful in my career before then, uh, you know, having managed global equities since uh, around 1990. Um, so it, it really is, I think, a focused approach and one where, you know, we very clearly articulate what we're looking for in our investments. 
Yeah. So you mentioned so you joined Fidelity in 2012. And am I right in thinking you, you effectively took over this fund or, or a version of it from Anthony Bolton, who was this kind of legendary investor at Fidelity and, you know, one of Britain's best known fund managers during his career and, well, pr- probably still even. You know, what, what, what was that like taking over from, from him? Was it was it daunting or? Well, yes. I mean, it, it, in, in actual fact, there had been a period before then because um, Anthony Bolton's funds had been split into Global and, and UK mm-hmm. uh, around about uh, 2006. Uh, and I came on to <clears throat> really revamp the fund in, in 2012. Um, but yes, I guess it was somewhat sort of intimidating following in these giant footsteps. Um, but I do think in investment, you know, every, every investor has to pay, play to their own strengths. It's really important to learn from other people. Um, but I think that every manager has slightly different strengths. Um, and, and, and so, you know, one doesn't try and, and copy what, what goes before exactly. Yes. OK, Th- thanks, Jeremy. So let, let's uh, turn to speaking about the state of global markets a bit. You, you commented in March on a year in a bubble after this incredible rally that we've seen during the coronavirus pandemic. Six months later, and the S&P 500 has gone up the best part of 20% again since. So we might say a year and a half in a bubble. What, what, what are your thoughts today? Are, are you worried about another crash? Well, I, I think that the, the, the phrase you referred to was a little bit of a pun, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because on the one hand, yes, markets have gone up uh, on the back of this incredibly loose monetary policy that we had. But of course, we'd all been sitting in a bubble, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, watching our screens from home. Yeah. Um, and, well, since and, then, I suppose we've seen the reopening of economies a bit more. Yes, absolutely. And I think in some ways, quite similar to 2009, companies have done really well coming out of the crisis. Um, so we've seen an extraordinary level of earnings beats as companies have um, reported their earnings. So um, we've come a long way. Yeah. Um, Year-to-date forecasts, company earnings forecasts for the current year have been revised up by around 20%. So um, the, if you like, the 2021 PE ratio of markets hasn't changed compared to where we thought it was at the beginning of the year. Yeah. Um, I was looking at some stats, I mean, basically, um, since the second quarter of 2019, in the US, real GDP is up just a bit, about 2%. Nominal GDP is up about 7 S&P revenues are up 15%. Right. And earnings are up 28% compared to two years ago. So there has been real progress there. But you're absolutely right that against that, um, valuation levels have risen more than the earnings um, have risen over that two-year period. Yes. Uh, well, Pat, Pat you, you mentioned that we've seen, uh, you know, earnings forecasts, you know, justifying what, what we're seeing in stock markets to an extent. In the portfolio, you, you do have a lot of these kind of, you know, FANG stocks and Microsoft as well. So top of the portfolio, Microsoft, Alphabet, Apple. What, what, what do you think of what we've seen from those companies in the latest results season? You know, Alphabet springs to mind for me. I think it had absolutely fantastic numbers again. Yeah, I mean, these are extraordinary stocks. And obviously, um, 
the, the, the FANG stocks have definitely benefited from, um, from, from lockdown. Um, you know, a lot more online activity, online consumption of, of media and gaming. Um, so, so you see that in the extraordinary numbers that have come out. Yes. Um, but we did increase exposure to FANG stocks actually earlier this year, just relatively recently, actually. Okay. Um, a lot of these stocks had um, essentially flatlined since around August last year. Mm. You know, in the final quarter of, of, of last year with the vaccine news, uh, value stocks took off um, and left these, these stocks behind. Um, I mean, quite honestly, I think that any global portfolio needs to have exposure to at least some of these names. They are truly extraordinary. And if we think that, you know, uh, and it's entirely true that the market um, is, you know, these are very heavily represented in the market. Yes. But um, less so than, say, the Nifty 50 in the early 1970s. Um, and in fact, the valuation premium of these stocks is relatively modest. Um, and particularly when you think of the underlying growth rates that they're showing, they're showing no diseconomies of scale at this point. Um, and I guess the major cloud on the horizon for these names is simply regulation. Yes, that, that's interesting. I mean, Amazon was another one I wanted to ask you about explicitly because I, I think I'm right in saying you actually bought that during the crash last year, uh, you know, about uh, $1,700 and you, you will have pretty much doubled your money since then and you know it is a stock you were historically a bit wary of you know wary of the margins in the core e-commerce business and and of course you know J jeff bezos is stepping into the background at least somewhat what, what what are your thoughts on amazon now yeah i mean it's it is an amazing company it's a complete monster obviously um completely dominant dominating e-commerce um you're you're right that uh you know, we had watched Amazon develop um, and become much more powerful in e-commerce, but also, um, you know, leveraging uh, its penetration and the loyalty of its customers through Prime, getting mm -hmm. into media through that, uh, but more importantly, through um, the cloud offering, Amazon Web Services. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was a, a, a part of the valuation of Amazon that had come from nowhere uh, and a highly profitable part of the business. Um, so, so we saw the opportunity um, last, last year going into, into the pandemic um, to add the stock at the same price that it had traded two years prior. Yeah. Um, you know, with all the potential for benefiting from lockdown. Um, so, so, so yes, it's, it's, it's been a powerful performer, um, you know, and we're getting to the stage, I think, where, you know, the free cash generation from Amazon is going to be very strong indeed. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, it, it has often been difficult to justify in valuation. I think it's much easier today. Yeah. And you, you mentioned Amazon Web Services there. Uh, 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 this incredible profitable division that's almost come out of nowhere. And you've also mentioned this kind of specular of specter of regulation and these questions, are, are these companies too big? Could, could regulators look to break them up? You know, what, what do you think about the prospects for a, a spin-off of uh, Amazon Web Services at some point? Or indeed, where, you know, when it comes to Alphabet, Google, people sometimes have mentioned a spin-off of YouTube. 
what, what, what do you think about that, that topic? That is a really good question. And I think um, probably the best companies um, are companies that aim, that can shrink as they grow. Um, and spin-offs can often be a part of that. Um, you know, capital discipline is, is also uh, a really important part. Um, and I think all these companies have shown that. Um, Apple, too, through, um, you know, very, uh, very focused shareholder returns and buybacks. Um, but I do think that's a really interesting question because that is one way, I think, that they may appease regulators um, uh, potentially in, in future. And, um, you know, the, the, the value of the parts of the business in both Amazon um, and in Alphabet, Google, um, I, I think exceeds the current market value, that, uh, that they probably would be worth more apart than together. Right. But clearly at the moment, you know, you've got in those two companies amazing growth engines, but also engines for innovation. Mm. Okay, well, yeah, very, very, very interesting. Um, so what, what about the value bucket of the portfolio? Let, let's talk about that a bit. Firstly, you know, th this term gets value gets thrown around a lot. What is a value stock for you? Um, well, I, th I think I've explained the, the mm. kind of methodology that we, that we use. Um, you know, value stocks are, are, are ones where we feel that they're perhaps underachieving compared to their potential. Mm. Uh, they tend to do better in stronger economic uh, conditions um, as profitability improves. Yes. Um, and, 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 and they are good value by virtue of the current earnings and, and cash flow potential. And mm. with growth companies, clearly most of the potential is in the future. So it's, it's much more front-loaded. Yeah. Uh, and, um, I mean, you talked about valuations in the market, but mm. really, if you separate the market into growth and value stocks, um, value stocks effectively have not re-rated at all in the past couple of years, as overall markets have gone up, the, um, the, the total market valuation has been driven really by the growth element in the market. Yeah. Okay. And so you know, there, there had, of course, since November's coronavirus vaccine breakthroughs been, uh, you know, this big rally for, for value and, and cyclical stocks in areas like, you know, traditional oil, oil and gas. Um, and that, that seems to have petered out a bit. And you, you've said that they haven't really re-rated. What, you know, what, what, what do you think about the value rally? You know, wh where's it going to go from here? And, and I suppose, how are you responding? Uh, yeah, well, I, I mean, I, th I think that the value rally has uh, another leg. Um, mm. Most of my investment career has been during a period when value has outperformed, um, albeit... Um, that outperformance over the long term has tended to take place in spurts yeah. around the economic cycle. Um, and I think what we saw, what we saw in, in, in the last 12 months or so was a very kind of compressed cycle. Um, with the vaccine news in November, value stocks rallied hugely, bond yields went up in anticipation of uh, you know, massive rebound in economic activity. Yeah. Um, and that basically came to a shuddering halt at the end of March. Mm. So 
um, value stocks are, uh, rightly or wrongly, very, very closely correlated with moves in, in bond yields. So we look mm. particularly at the 10-year bond. Um, at the end of March, it was about a one and uh, three quarter percent. Um, and then it fell very, very sharply. Um, what was going on? Um, well, effectively, the market behaved as if the cycle was over and we were yeah. going back to sort of pandemic style conditions. Um, and again, you've got polarization between value and growth, particularly in the second quarter of, of the year. Um, and I think, you know, there are a number of reasons uh, why that may have happened. Uh, I think the main reason is the Delta variant of, of COVID and mm. people worried that um, there would be another uh, wave of, of lockdowns and suppression of economic activity. And that, that was the main thing. Um, there may also have been some concern about delay in um, government stimulus as well. Yes. Um, but I think, you know, from, from here, um, you know, we do have the prospect of a, a huge stimulus bill coming through mm. before the end of the year in the States, uh, more stimulus coming through in other parts of the world as well. Um, China perhaps reducing um, the level of um, uh, constraint that it's placing on its own economy there. Um, so I think, you know, once again, conditions will improve for, for, for value stocks, but it may require a little bit of uh, yield curve steep steepening, you know, higher bond yields to go in tandem with that. Yes. And so where, where, in the, where, where do you think looks particularly cheap today? Where, where are you finding attractive opportunities? Well, you know, I would, I, I would say that relative to bond yields, mm. there's a lot that is relatively attractive. Um, and in, in many ways, I, I still think, despite the rise that we've seen so far this year, uh, on a medium and longer term view, equities remains um, you know, the, not necessarily the only game in town, uh, but probably the best game. Mm. Um, but I think if we're focusing on value areas, if, if we're looking at areas that are not expensive compared to their long run history, then I think geographically, the UK and Japan, mm. um, arguably emerging markets um, selectively are getting, getting there. Yeah, And then if we look at um, sectors, I think some of the materials areas, few of the industrials, we could probably still include autos there, mm. um, and financials. Uh, financials in particular are very closely correlated with, with bond yields. Yeah, uh, But I think that the, um, the universe of financial companies is, is probably a lot more healthy than it has been at any time in the past sort of 15 years years um, and valuations are still pretty modest yes uh, one area that is starting and i think people will start to talk a lot more about this it, um, starting to look more interesting compared to history is consumer staples okay where you know that sector has been a terrible performer so it's now trading close to historic average valuations mm. um, but uh, profitability in these companies is still relatively high. And I think looking at the next couple of years, I think there's still reason to, to, to be worried that, um, you know, profit margins can get further squeezed. So we are still very much avoiding consumer staples. Okay. 
So, um, you know, in, in those areas that out, that you've outlined, well, can, can, can you, you know, can you mention any names that you've been buying or adding to? And I suppose how big is the, the broader exceptional value bucket in the fund now? And how does that compare to history? Um, OK, so so I mean, broadly speaking, at the moment, the uh, the allocation to all the different buckets is uh, is roughly even. Uh, yeah. In the past, it's been a little bit more biased to towards um, to, towards uh, the the value side, even though mm. the, the fund as a whole hasn't had a huge value bias. Um, but I, I, you know, I think that um, some of the areas that we're finding quite interesting um, are within technology. Mm. We found some interesting value names um, and. Uh, this was really much more last year that we highlighted some of the more cyclical names um, within technology. So Japanese um, technology companies, component companies um, uh, listed in, in, in the States, uh, memory semiconductor companies. Mm. Um, yeah, so some semiconductors there. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a real mixture of sectors. Yeah, uh, yeah. Across and, the board, and we are. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we we have found recently, uh, for example, uh, some consumer sectors uh, or some consumer stocks that have yeah. been left behind. Mm. Uh, and uh, in particular, I would say within financials, um, which is you know the area that I think you know is the most heavily represented or is most clearly valued. Um, we found interesting names with within insurance um, and banking, um, particularly in in Europe. Yeah, I think so. I think you do you own a Viva in the UK? Yes, we do. Yeah, I mean that's a great example of a company that had been uh, extremely cheaply valued, um, yeah. and some of that value has been recognised by um, a sale of the sort of peripheral assets at decent valuations. Yeah. Uh, and a real focus on the core business under mm. new management. Um, so, you know, I think that that still looks, despite sort of really roughly doubling from the lows last year, um, I think that that still looks exceptionally interesting value. Yeah, interesting. Thanks. So what, what, what about green energy stocks? Is that some that is an area you've explicitly said that there, there was there was a bubble here. Um, but you also seem to be quite interested in it as a long-term theme. What, what, what are your latest thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think when you see such a powerful long-term theme, um, you know, you can see the growth potential over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and I think it's, it is one of, if not the most important themes that you can find mm. um, in, in the world as far as long-term growth potential is concerned. Uh, but it's not going to be a straight line. And I think yep. last year saw a massive amount of enthusiasm, particularly with the Biden win in the States and anticipation of, um, you know, government spending um, in, in that area. Mm. So, um, you know, a lot of these stocks did get bid up um, to really very extravagant levels. Yeah. Um, so what did we do? Well, we mostly held our ground, um, but in some areas we did take profits. So mm. um, uh, one, one example would be plug power, okay. which was added 
during last year. And this is a company that is founded on forklift uh, trucks um, uh, powered by um, uh, hydrogen fuel cells. Um, and they're using this as really a platform to expand into the whole hydrogen economy. Yeah. Um, the market became incredibly enthusiastic about this stock. Um, and it's, it's, it's one of the stocks that has stayed in the portfolio for the shortest length of time in the last few years. Um, how, so how, how long was Plumbo in the portfolio? Uh, it, I suppose it was in for um, around six months from the very start to the very finish. Yeah. Uh, at one point, it had quadrupled from our entry point. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and had clearly become highly, highly speculative. Mm. Um, we did well in other areas last year. So companies like Orsted, but, you know, that is a company that has underperformed this year, um, but stabilized recently. So, so we certainly suffered with some of the stocks that we held um, as, that, um, as those kind of bubble conditions unwound. Yes. Uh, I think in most of the areas where we did see bubbles going into this year, most of those bubbles have kind of deflated now. Yes. I, you know, I, I wanted to ask about Orsted, actually, and, uh, you know, uh, RWE, which, if I'm not mistaken, is, uh, you know, these are both utility companies, Orsted, uh, Danish, RWE, uh, German, I, I think. So, you know, both of these, particularly Orsted, um, have made this, this move towards, um, uh, you know, developing and generating energy from, from renewable energy, you know, and they've got the scale to, to invest in these massive offshore wind farms, for example. Um, and that has been accompanied by, by a big re-rating. Um, you, you know, I, I suppose, can, can, can you talk about that a bit more? I mean, Aust Austin in particular, I had a look before and, you know, th there is clearly a kind of green premium here, but it has already, you know, nearly quadrupled before dividends in the last five years. How, you know, how far can, can that kind of go? Yeah, well, it clearly has re-rated a lot. Mm. Um, I remember when it first came to the market, and we've held it for a long time. We've held it basically since it listed. Um, and um, people were valuing this company based on the visible cash flows from their existing projects. Mm. And valuing it, valuing these cash flows on using the same kind of discount rates that they would use in um, other utility projects. So people completely failed to understand the niche, I think, that it was in. Um, so a large part of the re-rating was, was down to, you know, understanding more about how risky this business was um, and the immediate pipeline that the company had. Um, I think we got to a stage last year where uh, the market was looking very far ahead um, mm. and got somewhat ahead of itself. Um, but basically, the, the company itself, um, which, which has a, a share of about a quarter of all offshore wind installations in the world. So this wow. is by far the biggest player mm. uh, with expertise and, you know, with that, um, the expertise and the scale that it has, I think it does have a, a, a margin advantage over uh, smaller or newer competitors. Yes. Um, they see offshore wind installations increasing by a factor of seven between 2020 and 2030. Mm. And I think we can be pretty sure 
that they will win a reasonable share of this new business. Um, but it's not just about that. I think that, you know, in the past, um, most of the revenues that they've had have been fully contracted over a relatively long period. So high visibility of the earnings, but increasingly they're going to be sort of market-based. So there'll be more revenues from market-based um, power prices and more yes. directly contracted with customers that want to buy green energy. Mm. Um, and I think that that will give them exposure to potentially higher prices and um, give them a, a way to um, lengthen effectively the contract period of, of the installations. Um, and finally, you know, they are going to be a player, I think, in, in hydrogen. Um, okay. This is, you know, going to be a, a, a huge industry. Um, and I think they have a part to, to play. So there's, there's an awful lot there. Um, admittedly, short-term valuations are, uh, are pretty high, but the company has pretty good visibility on double-digit cash flow growth in its mm. core operations between now and 2027, just on the existing contracted business. Okay, and that's even before the, the growth of these new areas that you've mentioned. Right. Wow, okay. It, 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 interesting. Um, I'd actually, well, one other thing I quickly want to talk about was you, you mentioned the, the auto sector and the value there. I think, you know, Tesla was one name that you, you, you got into before the pandemic, actually, and then, you know, got out of uh, at, a, at a massive profit. But VW is another stock that, that you've bought into, I think, because the case, it was very cheap. But, but you, you, you also do kind of rate its prospects in the, the transition to electric vehicles. Yes, that's right. I think there was a stage last year where the contrast was just um, very striking yeah. between Tesla and VW. Um, we had always had very high expectations for Tesla, and you know that really helped us um, stick with it um, as as it rose. And obviously, it was a spectacular year last year for Tesla. Uh, stage the Tesla valuation valued ten times VW. For a company that we thought in, in roughly five years' time would be selling the same numbers of battery electric vehicles. Right. Um, you know, VW obviously a huge incumbent, uh, but in the process of transforming its production into electric vehicles um, with, uh, you know, tens of billions of investment behind it. Um, and, and we just thought that contrast was so great. So whilst um, Tesla was in the portfolio as a unique business and, mm. and did its job in that um, VW appeared to be exceptional value um, and, and, and that's to an extent that has played out this year people have uh, started to recognize VW's potential um, you know there are all sorts of issues with VW there's no um, no denying that it, it, it deserves a relatively lower um, rating um, but Tesla's basically flat year to date and VW is significantly outperforming the market. Yes. OK, th th thanks, Jeremy. Um, I wonder if we can move on and you can tell me a bit more about this, this bucket, bucket focused on corporate activity, mergers. What, 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 what are some of the, the key names there at the moment? Um, well, you know, activities picked up this, this year and we expect a further increase in activity. So we're seeing more and more companies um, looking to spin out other businesses. Yeah. Um, 
and, and more and more mergers are likely to happen. So, so corporate activity is really picking up. Um, uh, I mean, some of, some of the examples recently that I could throw at you, um, Icon is a really interesting business. Um, now, this is um, a clinical research organization. So what it does is help drug companies um, test their, their pipeline drugs for yes. efficacy. Um, it requires a sort of army of, um, of, of, of patients uh, to test new drugs um, and all the processing of all that information. Um, it's a big and growing industry. Um, and Icon basically merged with a similar sized business um, and mm -hmm. through that, they're going to be able to realize some very significant um, synergies, uh, financial synergies, as well as some operational synergies. Um, but it's much more about enlarging that growth platform. Um, and the market took a pretty dim view of, of this when the um, acquisition was first announced. And I think you had some of the merger arbs coming in and, and selling the stock. Um, and uh, so, so it was a fantastic entry point. Uh, mm. This is a company that has proved to be very prudent in the past. Um, it goes into this deal with a, now a very highly geared balance sheet, but they will um, de-gear pretty, pretty swiftly. Um, so it's really interesting uh, company from a merger point of view, but also from an industry point of view, compelling. Mm. Um, Maybe Siemens is worth um, highlighting that they've done a lot in terms of, you know, what I mentioned earlier about big companies becoming smaller. I mean, Siemens has been through a process of spinning out businesses um, over a number of years. Yeah. Um, it's most recent being Siemens Energy. Mm. Uh, uh, and, and, and the business itself is involved in some really interesting areas uh, and relatively cheaply valued, particularly compared to um, U.S. industrials. Um, then we have um, a company called Concentrix. It's not a well-known company. Okay. Uh, worth mentioning. That's a, also a spin-off or a split. Um, and this company is involved in um, sort of customer service, um, customer services through both um, uh, telecenters um, and, and the software that goes with it. So, yeah. um, and hugely undervalued compared to other listed peers of which there are two or three okay uh, so those would be some examples i guess so so you know it, it sounds like the uh, well a key theme in this bucket is that you know uh yeah exact companies which undergo mergers or, or spin-off parts of their business and the, and the market sort of react, reacts badly and what you do is you, you try and look through the noise and say no these are, this is a great business underneath underneath there yeah, yeah, that's certainly part of it. When we can see that sort of um, technical aspect as well, I mean, we, obviously we want a good, strong, fundamental story. Uh, yeah. But the icing on the cake is where there is some technical reason in the market mm. for people to um, to sell the shares, um, giving us a, a potentially a great entry point. Okay, and I was wondering, you know, you talk about that kind of technical aspect. I, I was, I was, you know, I wanted to ask. I suppose, what, what, what's your informational edge here? You know, what, what, what do you guys know that others don't, do you think? Um, 
I, well, I think firstly, we benefit from having a relatively longer term view. Mm. Um, and when you get these kind of corporate events, you get sometimes um, activity from passive funds mm. who aren't looking at uh, fundamentals. Um, and we can also benefit by being ahead of the passive funds. Mm. Um, you also have hedge fund activity, very much more short term focused. Yeah. So again, we can get an advantage. Um, but I think also, um, you know, Fidelity has an enormous research base, um, you know, more than 200 people involved in that uh, research process. Yeah. Uh, and we have some pretty close relationships with companies as well. Mm. So if companies are going through significant change, um, they are always pretty keen to talk to us. Yeah. So, so we can hear the story from the horse's mouth, if you like, and be in on the story pretty early on. OK, thank you. And it, it seems relevant to ask here, particularly because you, you, you said that the UK is a region you, you still think is cheap. We've seen a lot of a lot of a, a big backlash recently against takeovers in the UK, uh, you know, particularly private equity bids. M Morrison's, uh, you know, is an example that's definitely hit the headlines. What, what have you made of that backlash? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, I th I, well, I think it's to some extent justified. I, I mean, um, mm. it is an area where government, no doubt, has to, uh, you know, pay attention. Um, and I think probably it's most justified in, um, in the aerospace takeovers that we're looking at. Um, okay. I mean, we've, we've benefited from, from holding Megit, which we uh, viewed as a, a very cheaply rated aerospace stock and, and obviously there are a couple of bidders out there that now agree with us um, mm. but it's it, it's clearly right that uh, government takes takes an interest um, you know I'm, I'm less sure about uh, about retail um, you know as, as long as it doesn't significantly change the competitive landscape um, you know I can't I can't see any massive reason. Um, for governments to worry that consumers or, or the country will, um, you know, suffer. Yes. Um, but 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 you know, I think I think we should we should welcome interest from the government on these things. Mm. Okay, thank you. Um, lo lo last question from me, a, a bit of a different one. You know, it's been such an extraordinary period. I was just wondering, what, what do you think has been your, your best investment during the pandemic, uh, and what about your worst? You know, what what do you think the big, biggest mistake has been? With right. the benefit well, of hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I think without a doubt, our best investment in the pandemic was, was Tesla. Yeah. As, as you say, no longer in, in the portfolio, but um, absolutely hit the spot and the, the imagination of, of the investing public and particularly mm. retail investors. Um, the stock far exceeded our original expectations. So, um, that's that's clearly one. Yeah, I think you know, in terms of mistakes, uh, I mean, we always we always make a, a few. Um, I guess one that springs to mind recently um, is is Willis Towers Watson, which was um, engaged in a, a bid. There was a bid for it. Um, yeah. We entered the stock after some underperformance um, and um, 
uh, you know, at a cheap level compared to where, where the bid was struck. Um, mm. uh, indeed, the bid did get blocked. Yeah. Um, but actually, we've lost very little money on this. Um, and we think it looks looks good value on a longer term view. So so we're sticking with that. But I mean, I think, you know, we have to we have to take the rough with the smooth. There are mm. some things that just aren't going to work out um, according to expectations. Uh, yeah. you, you can't you cannot win them all, basically. Yeah. OK, well, well, thank, thanks very much, Jeremy. That, perhaps that's a good point to to wrap things up. Um, so just, yeah, again, from me, thank, thank you very much for, jo for joining us. Uh, it, it was great to talk to you again and, and learn more about your approach. Well, that's great. Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and just the final thing to say from me is thank you very much for listening today. Please join us again soon for more Funds Fanatic Show podcasts.